Hey, I want to take a second since I have this chance to be up here to thank all of you for helping our family uh, get to this place and get adjusted here. Uh, all that you have done for us, whether that's praying for us or helping us in some way uh, with a, the move or helping us at, at the house, we are so thankful. You've really made us feel at home and like we're family already, and we've only been here for uh, a week and a half. So thank you so much. We are so excited to be with you and uh, to be part of this incredible uh, community. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, uh, if you're a parent, or maybe it happens inside of a, uh, a friend relationship, but I have three daughters and they are constantly battling each other. One of them will come to me and they'll share a story of how the other sister has hurt them somehow or is uh, getting them upset in some way. And she'll tell me this whole story. And then I'll go talk to the other daughter and find out a completely different side of the story. And I'm trying to figure out who was really right in this situation because they're both telling me such a great story and they're so animated and passionate about it. And, and I can't tell who was really correct in this moment because they both seem to be correct. It's really hard to get a good understanding when you don't see the whole picture. I watched a movie a while back that was just like this. One of my favorite movies of all time. It's called Vantage Point. It, carries this, this story of uh, uh, the President of the United States. Uh, his name is Henry Ashton. He's played by William Hurt. And he's in Salamanca, Spain for this uh, political get-together where they're going to be talking about an international peace treaty. Well, while they're at this gathering, there's an assassination attempt on his life. And then what makes this movie so unique and so incredible is that you watch this scene unfold where he's uh, almost killed, and then you get through this whole time, and then it rewinds all the way back to the beginning. Because what they want to show you is, you can see the assassination attempt take place from one person's perspective, but then it rewinds back and it shows you eight other people and how they viewed the situation. And you don't understand what was really taking place in this movie until you watch all eight situations, all eight vantage points of the same situation taking place. It is fascinating to go through and see one person and how they get through this 23 minutes and it rewinds all the way back to the beginning and you watch another person's perspective and you get 23 minutes in and you see, oh, that makes sense. You don't understand the full story until you get to the very end of the movie and then all the pieces fit together. This is very much how it is in life with us, isn't it? Where we are getting through these moments of life and we're trying to understand where we are or what's taking place or the challenges that we are facing in our lives. But we don't always know all the details. When we're talking with someone or when people impact our lives in other ways, we don't always understand their thoughts, their motivations, how they're coming into the situation. It would be really nice if we could see everyone else's vantage point of every single situation, but we can't. Let me take it just a little bit deeper. A lot of times this comes to play in our relationship with God, with how we tend to view things that are happening in our lives. Given the fact that God is the creator and controller of this entire universe, that he is good and that he promises to bless and to provide for us, how do we explain those moments in our lives that don't match up with those promises of goodness provision, and blessing. 
What happens when we have loss? What happens when we have fear and worry? What happens when we lose something or someone? What happens when we are, are filled with anxiety over transition in our lives, whether that's getting into a, a new marriage or having a child or getting a new job or going through a tran- transition like we are here at Keystone? What happens when we are in the middle of these situations and a trial comes, we start to understand a different side of God. Where is he in this moment? I feel like things should be happening in a certain way. And it doesn't seem to mesh with who God says he is, to be good, to provide for us, to bless us, to protect us. And here we are in moments like this. Problem is that we have an incorrect view of what's really taking place in our lives. If we could just get a different perspective of all that is going on, it might make more sense. But that's our problem. We have an incomplete vantage point. We can only see things that are taking place in our lives through our own imperfect eyes. We can't see what God is doing, what he's planning through each of those moments. And I want to take you to a story today that's talking just about that. A moment where... The person inside of it is confused at what is taking place. How can this be taking place in his life? If there is ever time to doubt Jesus' love, Jesus' power, Jesus' plan, his goodness, it would probably be in this passage. But what it's going to show us in the end is how we can trust Jesus and his vantage point on all these things. It's going to help us. It's not going to help us get through these these situations, the difficulties and the trials of our lives with joy all the time. It's going to make them manageable. It's not going to take them away, but it's going to make them manageable. And I want to show you this incredible passage. We're going to read it all the way through. It's a little bit long, but I want you to hear the story. So if you have a Bible, uh, if you flip to the book of Mark, it's the uh, second book in the New Testament, chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 21. This is the story. I want you to hear the whole thing, and then we'll uh, work our way through it. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of a terrible condition. Jesus realized that once the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask, who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, 
came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, Your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and then he told them to give her something to eat. What an incredible story this is. When you look at this, the first thing that you'll see is to see this guy named Jairus. Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. And when he's talking about the leader of the synagogue, it's, it's not just this professionally trained scribe or rabbi. He's not just a worship leader. It's a person who is a lay person from the, from the congregation who was entrusted by the elders of the community to take care of the uh, local synagogue. So he was in charge of building maintenance and security. He was there to help uh, gather scrolls and to schedule out people to pray and to read scripture and to preach. Usually this person was very morally upright. He was very well respected in the community, and most often he was really rich. And this is the kind of person that is here. And usually a person like this would want nothing to do with a, a local teacher like Jesus, especially one who had been kind of a little ostracized by the local leaders and religious elite of the day. But the first thing that we see is here is this person. This person who is really highly respected from the community, the leader of the synagogue. Jesus comes off the boat onto the shore and Jairus comes running up to him. Can you imagine somebody who is really wealthy, someone who's really respected in the community, just coming and running and falling down at the feet of another person? And that's exactly what Jairus did. He was overwhelmed by what was taking place in his life so much so that he knew that his only choice was to come to Jesus. And that's exactly what he was saying. He knew that Jesus was his only choice because we read this, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying. He said in verse 23, please come lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. The language that he's using is she's literally on death's doorstep. Just moments away, she is going to die. Please come with me and heal her. She's my little, little girl. So they go. They take off and they start walking towards Jairus' house. You can imagine there's a large crowd of people that are there with Jesus. They're all wanting to see a new miracle that he has and he's going to display. So they're all bustling towards this leader's house. And then the interruption takes place. 
They're bustling along, and all of a sudden, Jesus stops. And he's saying, who just touched me? His disciples are freaking out. They're like, hey, there's so many people around you. People are bustling and jostling you, and you're saying somebody touched you? And he's, he's saying, no, somebody touched me with faith. Somebody touched me knowing that I could heal them. And when he saw her, she came out and told the story. Now, what you don't get from this passage is that a lot of time took place. As Jesus is talking to this woman, if you hear what Mark is saying, he's giving some background details. She had struggled with this this condition for 12 years. She had gone to doctor after doctor, and no one had been able to help her. She had spent all of her money. She had not gotten better and said she had gotten worse. And the only way that she thought she could be healed is if she could just sneak up and touch Jesus' robe. So she's recounting this entire story. All the while, Jairus is sitting there. He's like, hey, hey, my, my daughter is still sick. She's, she's on death's doorstep. Can you imagine what would you be like if, if you were there and your child was literally on their deathbed and the person, the only person that could help is pausing to wait and listen to a story? Would that make you just a little uncomfortable? that make you a little bit worried and, and anxious and often maybe angry and upset? I can imagine that's how Jairus is feeling. In fact, if that were to happen today, can you imagine in an emergency room, if those two women were in the same emergency room and a doctor went and was caring for a woman with a chronic condition and let a girl with an acute condition die? Wouldn't he be sued for malpractice? I mean, come on, you can't do that. She needs the help. And that's how Jairus is feeling in this moment, overwhelmed by what's going on. But if you were to see Jesus in this moment, he's completely different. You see, Jesus is, is interrupted, but he's determined and he's aware. We can easily picture Jairus and how he's feeling in this moment, what is harder for us to understand is how Jesus could be so calm, how he could be so reserved and and so present in the moment with this other woman while all of this is taking place, while Jairus' daughter is still on the way to her death. See, in this moment, though, Jesus doesn't want us to miss the reality of his person, Regardless of what is going on, Jesus allows himself to be interrupted and takes advantage of those opportunities to minister the love, power, grace, and mercy of the Father to those who need it. We also need to take a moment and think, okay, in this, even though Jesus is is calm and interrupted, it does not mean that he is not aware of what's going on, or that he is disengaged from the original mission to go help Jairus' daughter. Jesus was completely aware of all the things that were going on. But this is where we get hung up, and I'm going to talk about this more in a little bit, is when things don't operate on our time frame, our first inclination is to think that something is wrong with what God is doing. God is not present. God is not helping. God is not doing what I'm asking him to do. But what I want us to realize, at least right now in this moment, is that no matter what interruptions are taking place, the delays that are going on, it does not mean that God is absent or deterred from his mission. 
he is going to go and heal Jairus' daughter or our loved one or come through in our difficult family situation or our problem at work or our financial struggle or our sin bondage issue. He is still going to do it. But I want you to see the contrast of these two views of the situation. In Jairus' mind, everything is falling apart. Everything is, is crazy. His daughter is sick on her deathbed. Jesus is stopping to listen to a woman's story. And while Jesus is speaking to the woman, listening to her story, attendants from Jairus' house, people from his household, they come up to him and they say, Jairus, there's no need to trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. Can you imagine that moment? Like, you are on your way to have your daughter healed by Jesus. Jesus stops and listens to a story and heals another person. All the while, your daughter dies. Can you imagine him just standing there in grief, just starts flooding over his body. And he's filled with this agony and this devastation and this doubt because in his mind, Jesus can only help if his daughter is alive. Once she gets to death's door and goes through, there's no hope. What can he do? To heal a disease? Yeah, that's something. But to raise somebody from the dead? Boy, that's something completely different. Can Jesus do that? I'm sure a thousand thoughts are, are rough, rushing through his mind and covering him, and he's just standing there. His eyes just kind of lost as he's staring at all these people, the sound kind of muffling around him, and he's just in this moment of shock, grief, agony, and despair, not knowing what to do. And in that moment, in the middle of that, Jesus comes to Jairus, grabs him and says, Jairus, don't doubt. Just be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Jairus, I know that this is all you can see right now, but don't doubt. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Things are going to change. This is a big deal for us as well. Believe in this situation? I mean, how can Jairus believe this? I can believe that you can do incredible miracles, but can you raise somebody from the dead? No one can do that. It's one thing to pray for your child while they're battling a life-threatening disease. Another thing to stand over her cold, lifeless body and say, rise again. Jesus is trying to change, though, what Jairus sees. Because Jairus can only see the situation from his vantage point. And what Jesus wants him to see is, I got something different in store. If you could only see what I see from my vantage point, it would be different. But this is the challenge that's before Jairus and all of us as well. You see, will we only believe, will we only believe in what our circumstances allow? Or will we believe in the God who makes all things possible? See, Jairus has to have the kind of faith that that woman had. That woman who said, if I could just sneak up and touch his robe, I will be healed. That kind of faith. 
that says, I can believe in the midst of impossible situations, ridiculousness. I can believe. Jairus needs that kind of faith that will go beyond what he can see, a faith that has no limits, even raising a child from the dead. So in contrast to Jairus being filled with agony, despair, and devastation, we have Jesus who says, trust me, be patient, and have faith. There's no need to hurry. It's not interesting. We have so many different cultures in America, and it's interesting when two cultures get together because they are fully different. Can you imagine if a groom was from the culture of Greece? Now, in Greece, people are commonly late. In fact, if you're early, you're weird. It's very common and appropriate for you to be late to everything. But if you contrast that with his, his bride, who is from Japan, in Japan, everything is precise. Everything has to be on time. Everything cannot be late. If you are five minutes early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. So can you imagine if those two got together and got married? What would that wedding ceremony be like? You have everyone on the groom side that are from Greece. They're having a great time. You know, it's like 15 minutes past when the wedding is supposed to start, and they're just talking to each other. They're relaxed. They're having a great time. Then on the other side, the bride side, you have everyone is like, why aren't we starting? Where is everyone? Why isn't the groom here? What is taking place? Everyone should be going right now. It's time to start. It's time to start. Two different cultures at the same situation with the same event with two different viewpoints. Everyone has the idea of this is the right time and this is not. And that's the same thing that's taking place here. So God's sense of timing will always confound us. No matter what culture we're from, his grace rarely operates according to our schedule. So when Jesus looks at Jairus and says, trust me and be patient, He's looking over Jairus' shoulder to us and saying, hey, I want you guys to be patient and trust me. You see, just a little bit before in chapter 4 of Mark, Jesus was asleep on a boat when a big storm hit. And the, his disciples are freaking out. They're, they're crazy. Like, Jesus, how can you be sleeping in a moment like this? Don't you care? We are going to die. Help us. And Jesus gets up and says, why do you have such little faith? And with two words, he silences the storm. But what he's trying to say through this is, do you think, do you think that following me is incompatible with going through a storm? Do you think that just because I'm with you, that bad things won't happen to you? It's not true. Because his love will enable things to happen to you that we don't think are right, that are, are not good. We are saying, if you loved us, you wouldn't let us go through this. If you loved us, you wouldn't let this happen to us. What Jesus is showing you is this. My grace and love are compatible with going through storms. I can love somebody and still let bad things happen to them because I'm God, because I know better than you do. What God is trying to say through this moment is this. It's not, I will not be hurried, even though I love you. 
It's I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. Please take a moment and meditate on this thought. If you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will struggle to, be, to feel loved by me. It's so hard when we're in the midst of difficult situations, when things are hitting us in our lives, when we're experiencing hurt and disappointment and loss, to feel that God should do something. And if he's not doing something in that moment, we often feel that God is not loving, that God is not kind, that God is not good, that God doesn't care. If we impose our sense of schedule and timing on him, we will struggle to feel loved by God. Jesus will not be hurried. So we need to pause and remember that what God is seeing is different than what we are seeing. So even after all this, Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. You can imagine the thoughts and the feelings that he had. So Jesus leaves the crowd there. He takes Jairus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he goes to the house. When they get to the house, it is quite the sight. They get close, and already they can start hearing the sounds. These people that are out in front, mourning, screaming, and wailing out in front of his house. Can you imagine if you were Jairus and you were with Jesus and the reality hits you smack in the face that your daughter is dead because here are these people that are crying, wailing out in front of your house. By the way, just on a side note, that is a really interesting picture that Mark presents to us there. Back in the first century, mourners were a, a guild. It was a paid gig for them. People would go and rent others to come and wail at your funeral or a funeral of a loved one. In fact, a, a rabbi 100 years later said that even the poorest person should hire at least two people to wail and two flute players to go with you from the, the, uh, from the place of burial or the house to the place of burial. Well, what is really interesting here is as Jairus is coming up and he's seeing all these people screaming and crying it hits him one more time in the face that his daughter has died. What I see in this is really interesting. The profession of mourners represent the hardcore realists of every age who decide when empirical realities have foreclosed on divine possibilities. What is this? Do you ever get to those moments when you are going through a difficult time and you're struggling to hold on to the hope that God is still there, that he's good, he's going to do something, and then you have somebody else in your life who maybe comes in and is negative or expresses how God can't be good if he's allowing this to happen to you, or why would these things happen to you if you're following God, or what good is following God if you have to go through this? I see this happen so much that when we are struggling to hope in God and to believe that he's still good, that there are still people that come and they'll try to dissuade you from that. To get you to think that nothing else can be done. 
But Jesus sees something different. See, the people, they only see death. Jesus gets to them and he goes inside and he, he says, why are you guys crying? She's not dead, she's just asleep. They, they laughed at him. They thought he was off his rocker. What are you doing? You, we know a dead child when we see one. Jesus sends all of them out, keeps his disciples, Jairus and Jairus' wife, and they go in to see this child. And this is what's so cool, is that in this moment, Jesus, what he says is, there's no death, it's, it's just sleep. Just sleep. That's not as terrifying. The Bible often refers to death for the believer as, as just sleep. But what is death in the hands of the person who created life? It's just sleep to him. The reason that there is no fear in Jesus' eyes is because he has taken the sting of death away. And that's going to happen again now for Jairus as he approaches this little girl. For the parents, they're thinking there's no way that Jesus can do anything. For them, it's impossible to stand over a lifeless body. I can remember I was in the house when my grandfather died and I remember standing over his lifeless body knowing that nothing else could be done. Nothing else could be done. He had, he had passed. And I'm trying to think through this in my own mind. What would I think if it was one of my daughters that was lying there and nothing else I felt could be done? I would be overwhelmed with this grief. I think sometimes we lose the connection to stories like this. But put yourself there with Jairus, standing over his daughter who has died. What can be done? But look at this moment from Jesus' perspective. In the eyes of the parents, it's impossible. But for Jesus, this is a special, intimate moment. He goes and he sits down on the bed with this child and very tenderly grabs her hand and says two words. The first one is this, Talitha. It means little girl, or some translations say little lamb. But it, it's hard to capture the nuance of that word because what it's really capturing is, is a, a pet name. So if you have a pet name for your child, it would be this. Something like honey or sweetheart. That's the kind of word that Jesus is using here. Is that little pet name, that affectionate name. Little girl. And then the next word he says is kum, which means rise or get up. It's interesting. He doesn't say be resurrected. There is a word for that. He doesn't say be resurrected. He says get up. In essence, all he's saying is this. It's almost like what I said to our, our daughter this morning. Honey, get up. It's time to get ready. That's all Jesus is saying. He's sitting down with her saying, little, little lamb, honey, it's time to get up. Grabs her by the hand and ushers her back into life. What? Can you imagine if you were Jairus and you're sitting there, you had seen your daughter just completely dead right in front of you, thinking there's nothing else that could be done, and here she wakes up and stands up and starts walking around the room. That would blow my mind, and it blew their mind too. They were filled with wonder and amazement. 
Jesus in this moment is facing death, the most merciless, inescapable enemy of the human race. And this is his power that he simply grabs this child by the hand and lifts her through it. Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by my hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. Why would we hurry someone like this, someone so loving, so tender, so powerful? Why would we be impatient with someone by this who brings us through so much? This is an incredible story. But what it's showing us is very important. And what Mark wants to convey to us is this, is when you look at a certain situation in your life, it's easy for us to only see it through our vantage point, to not see what else is going on, what could be really taking place. What does God have in store? Early in this story, it seemed like to Jairus that Jesus is delaying for no good reason, that there's no reason for him to stop. It's, it's almost unconscionable that he would not come and help. But now looking back, it is an even more powerful reminder of who Jesus is. I'm sure that if I sat down with a lot of you, I would hear stories that were very similar to the ones I've had in my life. I would hear you explain the difficulties that you're going through. But I would sit with you and say the same thing. You know, I don't know why it feels like God is not showing up. I don't know why God is delaying. I don't know why that person is not being healed. I don't know why you're going through this trial. I don't know why you're feeling this hopelessness. But I know one thing that God does and God has a completely different view. He has some essential variable that we aren't able to see yet. Evil and sickness and the death of little children are, are still present in this world. Not every touch heals. Not everything that is broken is healed. And even those with the greatest of faith may sometimes hear the dreaded words from a doctor that your little girl has died. Not every time will we experience a healing like this. But this passage isn't meant to do that. It's not meant to give us an explanation of why bad things happen to us. What it's meant to do is to show that God is on the side of those who suffer and are stricken with grief. Miracles don't occur in every situation. In fact, if they did, we would not have really a need for faith. Sometimes healing of emotional pain is just as important as the healing of physical pain. But do we have this kind of faith that will trust God through it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three people that were in exile in a faraway country a long time ago, they were forced to bow down and worship a statue. And they said, we are not going to do it because we worship God alone. And they told the king at that time, it doesn't matter if you throw us into the fiery furnace. It doesn't matter what you do. Our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not do this. So they had that, that same tension that I know that God can save me, but even if he doesn't, I still trust him. It's that kind of faith that we have to have through this. Even though this little girl is separated from death for just a small time, she will one day die again. 
That lady who was healed of her condition, she was healed of that one, but no doubt she will have more ailments as she continues to age. Faith, though, is able to hold on in the midst of all these things and cling to the hope that God is still in control and has a plan for it. Right now, you, you might be overwhelmed. You might be overwhelmed with grief over the loss of something or someone. You may feel that God is nowhere to be found. But God says this in Psalms, I am close to the brokenhearted. I will rescue those whose spirits are crushed. Right now you may feel alone or, or abandoned or forgotten, but God wants you to remember that there's not a moment I've left you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll never abandon you. God has not given up on the future and the plan that he has for your life. Right now you might feel that your vantage point is that God is delaying his provision for you. Bills are coming in and money is not. And what are we going to do? How are we going to provide? What can we possibly do to help us in this situation? We have to remember that God has promised to provide for all of our needs. And that he will continue to do that in some way. Listen, if he can bring food by ravens and get money from the mouth of a fish, he can provide for your needs. God wants to do it and he will do it. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You might feel that you are in the middle of a a big transition, whether you're graduating from high school or from college. You might feel that you are overwhelmed. What do you do next? You might be just entering a marriage. You might be just having your first child. You might be just getting to retirement and you have all these, wor- these worries. Like if you graduate from college, what, what job will I get? Will I be good at my job? Will the job provide for me? When you get into a marriage, will I, will I be loved by my spouse? Will I be able to provide for my spouse? Will my spouse always be with me? When you think about retirement, will I have enough money to retire Will I have to live my retirement years alone? Will I have enough money to get me through my retirement? When you're so overwhelmed by all these transitions, God knows the ends from the beginning and he is there with you every step of the way. And God will cause all things to work together for good to those that love him. Right now, you might might be overwhelmed by a sickness in your life or the life of a family member. And wondering, where is God in this? Why is he not coming to help? God is not silent, nor is he absent in the midst of this. He's walking through it with you. And he has a plan and purpose for it. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. The only vantage point that will get us through these moments of life is this. God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Whatever it is that we're going through in our lives today, whatever you may be facing, in our temptation to feel that God is absent, he's not with us, that he doesn't understand, that he's not where we want him to be. He's taking too long. Hopefully this story will help us remember that God is not delaying. God is not absent. God is not disengaged from this mission. He still has a plan for you, for all that you're going through, and is going to meet you where you are at to get you to the exact place he wants you to be. So important for us to have that perspective, 
Maybe you're going through a hard time today. If I can give you one final encouragement, it's uh, often God speaks to me and blesses me and ministers to me through music. If you're struggling at all today, there's a song that has been blessing me. It's called uh, Blessings from Laura's Story. Uh, I would encourage you, look that up. Let that minister to you as well. But God is there. He is not absent and his vantage point is so much greater and much more incredible for us if we just hold on to the faith to believe it. God, thank you so much for stories like this that give us all the feels, all the emotion, all the struggles, the challenges of trusting you despite what is taking place in our lives. I pray, God, that you would help us to cling to that faith, to believe that nothing is impossible with you, that you are a good God, that you are going to care for us, provide for us, be with us, walk with us through each of these moments. Help us never to lose sight of the fact that you are working all things out for good for us. We thank you and praise you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.